0: Thanks for downloading this University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland, from Magna Carta to the Present. This Irish Legal History Society conference took place in Christchurch Cathedral in November 2016. The event was organised to mark the 800th anniversary of the transmission of Magna Carta to Ireland. This episode features the Irish Legal History Society Winter Discourse and Conference Keynote, which is given by Paul Brand from the University of Oxford. His paper was entitled Magna Carta in Ireland, 1215-1320. to 1320. The lecture was recorded for podcasting by Smart Media.
1: Thank you very much for that warm welcome. Um, Thank you all for coming here this evening, and thanks in particular to the organisers of this event in thinking of me, inviting me here. It's always nice to come back to Dublin. It's changed every time I've come here. Some of it for the better, quite a lot of it for the better. Um, A little bit for the worse, but not very much. Um, So yes, it's lovely being here, and, and thank you so much for inviting me. 2015 was the year of the celebration, as we were reminded this morning, of the 800th anniversary of the granting by King John of what we now call Magna Carta, but of what was originally more simply called the Charter of Liberties in England. Um, and I feel rather grateful for that celebration because it took me in, I think, February of 2015 for the first and probably the last time inside Buckingham Palace, and there's a lovely picture of me actually shaking hands with the Queen. Um, it also, I was also among the select group, this time of several thousands, uh, who made an early start on 15th of June 2015 for the Meadow at Runnymede, or what is now identified as being that, by the River Thames, the place where 800 years before, to the day, allegedly, King John had possibly affixed a seal to the charter, if there ever was a charter, to signify his agreement to the concessions it contained. And as we were reminded this morning, the act was commemorated in some style by his successor, Queen Elizabeth II, and I can't imagine anyone having got concessions like that from Queen Elizabeth, Um, and by Archbishop Langton's successor as Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and by many, many others. But 2015 was not the year for the celebration of Magna Carta in Ireland. For reasons that will become clear, or are already partially clear to you, but will, I hope, uh, make even clearer in the course of the following paper. There is a proper year, or perhaps a pair of years, for celebrating the 800th anniversary of the long history of Magna Carta in Ireland. And that year is 2017, or perhaps both 2016 and 2017. In 1215, King John was King of England, Lord of Ireland, Duke of Aquitaine, and he still claimed to be Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou though these were lands which he had lost to Philip Augustus, the King of France, in 1204, but whose loss was only to be acknowledged and finally accepted by John's son, King Henry III, in the Treaty of Paris of 1259. The concessions King John made in the Charge of Liberties were made on behalf of himself and his heirs to all the freemen of our Kingdom of England, the final section of the charter ordered that the men in our kingdom have and hold all the said liberties, rights and concessions, well and in peace, freely and quietly, fully and wholly, to themselves and their heirs, of us and our heirs. They were made to the free men of the kingdom of England, not to the inhabitants or subjects of any of other, other of King John's territories. And it was wholly in keeping with the purely English focus of the Charter that the Charter started with a grant to God on behalf of the King and his heirs that the English Church be free and have its rights whole and its liberties unharmed. And then repeated and confirmed a previous promise of freedom of election to dignities in the English Church. Quite a lot of the the Charter's individual chapters also have specific English references um, to English places or rivers, the city of London, the rivers Thames and Medway, the honours of Wallingford, Nottingham and Lancaster, and the access of foreign merchants to England and their freedom to travel and stay in England and leave where they wished. It would be wrong, though, to suggest that the Charter was an exclusively English document. It wasn't. The um, Charter giving foreign merchants qualified freedom of entry into England within in England to buy and sell on payment of the ancient and rightful customs is obviously one of those. And there were also a series of chapters towards the end making special provisions in respect of England's smaller, less powerful neighbours in the Kingdom of Scotland and the lordships and principalities of Wales. Wales has by far the most detailed chapters um, in the uh, Charter. Um, Scotland gets a much shorter trift. Chapter 59 is solely concerned with the Scottish royal family. Alexander the King of the Scots was promised the return of his sisters and his hostages and that King John would stand to write on Alexander's claims to liberties and his right to... ...by the judgement of his peers in John's court... ...in the same way as John would do... ...for king's other barons of England. Alexander was also a significant baron in England... ...in his own right. But there's nothing anywhere in the 1215 Charter... ...about the Lordship of Ireland. John gets his full title as King of England... ...and Lord of Ireland at the beginning of the Charter. and Those listed as advisers to the making of the Charter... ...included Henry of London, Archbishop of Dublin... ...William Marshal, Earl of Pembroke... ...the Lord of the biggest of the Irish liberties... ...the Lordship of Leinster. Henry had only become Archbishop of Dublin in 1213... ...and later that same year also became Justiciar of Ireland... ...and he was an Englishman... ...who seems to have had no pre-existing ties with Ireland. William Marshal's ties with Ireland went back further as far back as his marriage to Isabella de Clare, the ultimate heiress of Strongbow, Richard Fitzgilbert de Clare, in 1189, though it was only to be a little later that he managed to obtain possession of her Irish lands. But neither of these two men is likely to have wanted anything about Ireland inserted in the Charter. In the case of Henry of London, this was because he was John's appointee to the Archbishop of Dublin was certainly John's own appointee to the justiciarship. He was the king's man, and not the king's opponent. In the case of William Marshall, this was because, uh, despite his prior treatment, rather bad treatment by John, he too remained a loyal supporter of King John in the crisis of 1215. John's concessions in June 1215 were the product of a military standoff with some of his subjects in England, Runnymede itself chosen for the negotiations because it was about halfway between the royal castle at Windsor in Berkshire and the Middlesex town of Staines and its bridge over the Thames carrying the main road running from London to the west of England, where John's perennial opponents had taken up a defensive position there was no reason for John to make his Irish subjects any concessions without any kind of similar military pressure being brought to bear bear on him by them. But there may have been other reasons too for Ireland not being mentioned. When King John visited Ireland in the summer of 1210, he decided and decreed, possibly at a meeting in Dublin towards the end of his stay, that in future English laws were to be kept in Ireland uh, in one formulation, or that the laws and customs of England were to be observed in Ireland in a second. Two of our pieces of evidence for this decision also suggest that there was rather more to it than that. The most revealing is a passage from a 1226 writ of King Henry III to the barons, knights, and free tenants of Leinster, in favour of Geoffrey Marsh, who was the Justiciar of Ireland, but here, in his private capacity, as a widower claiming the right of courtesy, the right uh, for a life tenure of the lands that his late wife had held. This, after mentioning the general decision in principle to follow English law, adds that King John left those same laws reduced to writing under his seal at the Dublin Exchequer. That information may have come from Geoffrey Marsh himself. He was certainly in a position to know because he'd been in Ireland at the time of John's visit. The suggestion that this may have formed some kind of more general statement of English legal custom for Irish use is supported by the prior mention in the same writ of the fact that King John had brought with him from England to Ireland men who were discreet and knowledgeable in the law, that is, men who would be capable of drawing up such a statement or general summary of English law, on whose advice he'd acted. Simon of Patishall, a senior justice in the court corps and reggae, is one possible legal expert available for drawing up a statement of English law. Simon is known to have gone to Ireland in 1210, from a recorded payment to the mariners in the cog of ernulf of Cologne, which had brought him over to Ireland. The other experts might have been the other justices of the court, Coram Rege, who were free to travel to Ireland since the court held no sessions during Trinity Term 1210, while the king was in Ireland. James Potter and Henry de Pont-Odemer appear as justices with Simon in Easter 1210 in the court, Coram Rega, and continued as justices there to 1214. Although Robert de and Roger Huscarl first appear in the court in Michaelma's term 1210, they too might have gone to Ireland. In a second mandate of 1228, addressed to Richard de Burgh, then Justiciar of Ireland, we hear more specifically of a charter of King John, our father, to which his seal was appended and of specific laws and customs contained in the said charter which again sounds like some more general statement of English law and custom. Whatever it was cannot have been too detailed. The king envisaged the charter being read out on a day and at a place to be fixed before, the, before all the archbishops, bishops, abbots, priors, earls and barons, knights, free tenants and bailiffs of all the counties of Ireland, and the justicia then telling them all to keep and observe those laws and customs in future and also that a proclamation for their observance would be made in each of the counties of Ireland. The 1210 Charter does not, of course, survive, but it seems possible that it might have gone over at least some of the same ground as Magna Carta was to cover five years later, especially on matters such as reliefs, uh, succession duties, uh, wardships, dower, even perhaps the protection against arbitrary arrest, imprisonment, season or outlawry. Other clauses of the 1215 Charter might have been seen by contemporaries as quite inappropriate for Irish conditions. There were no Jewish creditors in Ireland, for example, which rendered chapters 10 and in 11 superfluous. But had King John been a little bit more enthusiastic about the Charter of Liberties, he might nonetheless have arranged for a copy of it to be sent to Ireland. Not for the Lordship of Ireland to be included in the initial grant, but for it to be sent a copy of the English charter. The Lordship of Ireland was now subject to English laws and customs. The charter of liberties might well be seen as confirming, extending, and amending existing English laws. But John was not. Although he had promised in the charter to do nothing to procure the annulment, that was exactly what he did and almost at once. The Charter was agreed on the 15th of June. Copies of the Charter were being dispatched to the counties later that month. John's messengers must have left for Rome to seek an annulment of the Charter from the Pope no later than the end of July, perhaps earlier than that. And by the 24th of August 1215, just over two months after the granting of the Charter, John had obtained a bull from Pope Innocent III, in effect annulling the Charter. And that had probably arrived in England by the end of September. By then, in any case, England was descending into civil war. John's opponents were attempting to remove him from the English throne, replace him with the eldest son of the French king, Philip Augustus, the future king, Louis VIII. The 1215 Charter of Liberties was by then, for almost all purposes, a dead letter and it had been pretty much a dead letter from the time that it was conceded. Um, Conditions were so upset in the country that courts, for example, were not in session at all during that time. But the Charter of Liberties lived on. Not long after the untimely, but in some respects fortunate, death of King John at Newark from dysentery. Not a nice way to go, but of all the people that you might have thought... (laughs) he deserved it. King John comes fairly high on the list. He died of dysentery at Newark and Nottinghamshire on the, 18th, the night of the 18th and 19th of October, 1216. And the succession of his nine-year-old son, Henry III, to the English throne, a revised version of the charter was issued. This followed the first hurried coronation of the young Henry at the Abbey of Gloucester, not as was customary at the Abbey of Westminster, since Westminster was under the control of Louis and his baronial allies on the 28th of October, 1216. And then a meeting of the Regency Council held at Bristol where revision of the charter was discussed. What was from the first evidently intended only as a temporary reissue was sealed on the 12th of November at Bristol. Not under the royal seal of the child king, there wasn't yet such a seal, but under the seals of the papal legate, Guala Bicchieri, and of William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, the rector, in fact the regent, of the king and of his kingdom. The November 1216 reissue committed the young king and his supporters to the continuation of many of the royal con- concessions contained in the charter. Some chapters remained the same, others were likely revised. Still others, which were regarded as more contentious on matters such as obtaining consent to taxation, freedom of movement in and out of the country, and relating to local administration, were omitted for the time being, but reserved for fuller consideration later. The reissue also removed permanently from the Charter the provisions about the enforcement of its chapters by a baronial group of 25, and most of the clauses relating to the redress of wrongs committed by John, his brother Richard, and their father Henry II. Almost nothing is known about the arrangements made for the publication of the revised charter in November 1216, but some must surely have been made. There would have be been little point in agreeing to its issue without agreeing to send out copies to the Counties of England, or at least to those Counties which remained under the control of the young King's supporters. Only a single original sealed official copy of this reissue survives. It's in the archives of Durham Cathedral, now held in the University Library of Durham. It may be no coincidence that the Bishop of Durham at the time of its sealing was also Chancellor of England. It may therefore have been something like an official master copy. It must have been the twelve uh, the, the 1216 revised reissue, which was the charter of liberties which the king had granted to the barons and all others of her, um, our kingdom, and which the legate had confirmed by his seal, which the Sheriff of Worcestershire was ordered. To read out at his county court by a writ attested by the Earl Marshal on the 23rd of June 1217. Over six months later, the order doesn't make it clear whether or not a com- copy accompanied it. It does indicate that the sheriff must by then have been in possession of a copy, and also that the legislation was now being published locally, whether for the first or the second time. An undated letter in the king's name to Geoffrey Marsh, justiciar of Ireland, enrolled on the Dorse of the close roll for the first regnal year of Henry III, 1216-17, brings us the first evidence of any suggestion that Ireland should receive its own equivalent of the English Charter of Liberties of 1215 and 1216. The letter was apparently sent in response to a letter from Geoffrey carried to England by the royal clerk and future English royal justice and Irish chancellor, Ralph of Norwich, and it apparently belongs to late November or December 1216. It informs Geoffrey of some of what had been happening in England, burial of King John at Worcester, coronation of the young King Henry III at Gloucester, The subsequent meeting of the Minority Council at Bristol attended by all the prelates of England, that's almost certainly an exaggeration, and many of the earls and barons, and the granting to them there of the liberties and free customs they had requested, and that's apparently a reference to um, the revised reissue of the Charter of Liberties. Geoffrey's message had only arrived, it seems, after the council had already dispersed, because the king, or rather his advisers, said that he or rather they, needed to take advice on the suggestion, apparently made by Geoffrey Marsh, that the king's mother, John's widow, Isabel of Angoulême, or his brother, the seven-year-old Richard, the future Earl of Cornwall and King of Germany, should be sent to Ireland, perhaps as nominal regents. Geoffrey was instructed to take the field of the king's men, his subjects, in Ireland, renewing their pledge of loyalty to the new king. And then, almost at the end of the letter, we read an expression of the king's wishes, or perhaps more realistically, the wishes of um, the papal legate and William Marshall, that Geoffrey and the king's other subjects in Ireland should enjoy the same liberties as the king had granted to his subjects of the Kingdom of England. This can only, I think, be a reference to an intention to grant to the king's subjects in the lordship of Ireland the Charter of Liberties not as originally granted in 1215, but as re granted on or by or on behalf of the new king in 1216. Someone other than Ralph of Norwich took the reply back to Ireland. Ralph was apparently kept in England until he could take a copy of the Charter of Liberties back with him to Ireland. This seems to have been ready by the sixth of february twelve seventeen when letters patent were issued in the name of Henry III at Gloucester, perhaps during another council meeting, to all his subjects in Ireland. These start by commending them for the loyalty they had always shown to his father and would, it was evidently hoped, always show to him. In recognition of that outstanding loyalty, it was the king's wish that they and their heirs should enjoy in perpetuity of the king's grace and gift within the king's kingdom of Ireland the liberties granted to our kingdom of England by the king's father and the king himself. They added that the king was sending them in a separate charter those liberties as clearly written down with the common council of all his English subjects and as sealed with the seals of the papal legate guala and William Marshall, the rector of the king and his kingdom. They also envisaged, or perhaps promised, that they would be sealed with the King's own seal in due course. Both this letter and the charter were then probably brought to Ireland by Ralph of Norwich who set out for Ireland with the safe conduct issued on the 14th of February. But what was it that Ralph took with him? Until its destruction in 1922, the public record office of Ireland here in Dublin contained a medieval manuscript known as the Red Book of the Exchequer, and we heard about that also uh, this morning and this afternoon, and certainly associated with the Irish Exchequer, whose contents included what has been described, or was subsequently described as the Magna Carta Hiberniae. The best edition of that document is, I think, still that by Henry Berry in the statutes, early statutes Ireland, published in 1907. At first sight, it looks like an intelligent draftsman's attempt at adapting the revised version of the Charter of Liberties as issued for England in 1216 for use in Ireland. And again, we saw this afternoon some of those major differences. The Irish, not the English, church is granted freedom. The city of Dublin, not the city of London, is to have its free customs uh, fish weirs are to be removed from the Liffey and throughout Ireland not from the Thames and Medway and throughout England the measure of corn now this is, will turn out to be quite important so um, concentrate just for a moment on this the measure of corn is to be the quarter of Dublin not the quarter of London freedom of movement of foreign merchants is throughout Ireland not England etc but it doesn't look like what we might have expected a Charter of Liberties sent to Ireland in February 1217 to have looked like. The Magna Carta Hiberniae, as we have it, is dated the 12th of November 1216, not the 6th of February 1217. It is not specifically addressed to the King's subjects in Ireland, unlike the letters patent which accompanied what was sent. It says nothing of having been issued by the Common Council of the King's English subjects, or is having been granted in reward for the loyalty of the King's subjects in Ireland. It says nothing of any provision for its being reissued under the King's own seal at some future date. It looks like a later, probably unofficial, attempt to produce an Irish version of the Charter of Liberties based on the 1216 English Charter. It's not very likely to be the charter actually sent to Ireland in 1217. That charter, like King John's charter on the adoption of English law in Ireland of 1210, does not survive. It is, however, from this date that the Charter of Liberties, or as it was later to be called Magna Carta, began to apply in Ireland. It might be added that had such a charter been issued as the Magna Carta Hibernia in 1217, we might have expected to find copies of it in the municipal archives of Dublin, whether in contemporary or later copies, and we don't. We might have expected to find later invocations of the adapted clauses when our evidence gets better in the last years of the 13th century, and we do not. And it might be added that when a royal mandate was being draft, drafted for dispatch to Maurice Fitzgerald, the Justiciar of Ireland, in 1244, on the desirability of common weights and measures throughout Ireland, with the suggestion that they should perhaps be drawn from those used in Dublin, this was put as a suggestion that might be adopted if found suitable, but only after taking advice from the good burgesses of the land of Ireland. No reference into the mandate to this having re- been required earlier by any adapted 1217 issue, Irish issue, of Magna Carta. Even more striking is the fact that there was legislation in 1269 made by the advice of the then Chief Justice of Ireland and other members of the Council of the Lord Edward and with the consent of the magnates and the community of Ireland that there should be a single measure of grain, Ale, a single weight, and a single l in Ireland, and that they should be the same as in the city of London. This wasn't quite what the Charter of Liberties of 1215 and its children said, but it's much closer to the provisions of the English Charter than to the provisions of the supposed Magna Carta Hiberniae. The English Charter of Liberties went on being amended and reissued after 1216. The second and more definitive reissue of the Charter was issued sometime in November 1217, after peace had been made with Prince Louis and his supporters and the end of the Civil War. The Charter of Liberties was now paired with a separate Charter of the Forest, and so became for the first time the great, or perhaps just the big, Charter, Magna Carta in Latin, as opposed to the smaller Charter of the Forest. There were further changes in the Chapters' inherited from earlier versions of the Charter, and six new clauses were added, though one of them was only a temporary one authorising the destruction of castles recently built. There was to be one more revised reissue of Magna Carta, the third revised reissue in less than a decade, in February 1225. Textually, that was very close to the 1217 revised reissue, minus the clause about demolishing castles, but plus an additional clause containing a promise by Henry III that neither he nor his heirs would ever seek authorisation for infringing or annulling the liberties contained in the Charter. There were two other distinctive features of this version. This was the first Charter of Liberties, or Magna Carta, to be sealed with the seal of the young King Henry III, rather than those of his guardians. Henry had been declared of age for certain purposes by the Pope in 1223, though he was only still 17 years of age in February 1225, and still under, therefore, under the normal age of legal majority. But the Charter could now plausibly emphasise in its preamble that it had been made spontaneously and of the King's goodwill. The second is that there was an explicit quid pro quo for the granting of the Charter. This was the granting by the King's subjects of one-fifteenth of all their movable goods by way of a subsidy, taxation. Only one piece of evidence suggests that either of these two later revised reissues of Magna Carta might have been sent almost at once for publication to Ireland. This is a letter from Henry, the same Henry, Archbishop of Dublin, to King Henry III, apparently belonging to January or February 1220, relating to the Archbishop's difficulties with Thomas FitzAdam, who had recently been appointed Chief Forester of Ireland, over the Archbishop's Forest, and this is pretty much the Forest of Glendalough, which Thomas was allegedly trying to include in the King's Forest and subject to forest exactions. The archbishops claimed his church's liberties in regard to the forest were strengthened not just by a charter of King John but also by the king's own charter recently sent to England in which the king confirmed not just to churches and ecclesiastics but also to all laymen their proper and customary liberties. There was no such general confirmation of liberties in the 1216 charter or rather in the only genuine copy that we have But there was one in the 1217 revision of the Charter, with its saving clause, Chapter 46, saving to archbishops, bishops, abbots, priors, templars, hospitallers, earls, barons, and all others, both ecclesiastics and secular, the liberties and free customs which they had previously held. But there seems to be no other evidence to support this, and perhaps the archbishop was mistakenly conflating the 1216 revision of the Charter of Liberties, which had been sent to Ireland, with the 1217 revision, which had not been. Although the men of the Lordship had been promised a further confirmation of that charter once the king had obtained his own seal, there is no evidence to suggest that a copy of the 1225 revision of the Magna Carta went to Ireland. And the wording of that charter was a grant to the king's English subjects and the inclusion in that charter of a specific reference to the granting of the 15th of movables having been made in return for the reissue also perhaps re- rendered it unsuitable for transmission to Ireland without further modification. It's tempting to suppose that it was a reissue in some form of Magna Carta that the barons of Ireland were requesting in the summer of 1248. All that we know of this comes from the king's initial and rather high-flown response to a message brought by the messengers of the barons of Ireland. The king was not willing, he said, to grant all the Articles of Liberties which they were seeking, but he was sending to John Fitzgeoffrey, his justiciar in Ireland under his seal, a list of those which he was willing to grant, and also authorising John to inquire what they were willing to give him in return while assuring them that he commended their constant friendship and faithful service. But constant friendship and faithful service without giving the king something didn't really count for that much. If a reissue of Magna Carta was indeed what they were seeking, the proposed negotiations seemed not to have borne fruit. Perhaps Henry's notions of what would be to his disinheritance, and thus excluded from the deal, he specifically mentions we're not going to give anything that could would be to our disinheritance, was too extensive, and the price he wanted for the confirmation was perhaps too high. But there is evidence to suggest that by the early years of the 14th century, it was a later version of Magna Carta, rather than the 1216 reissue or the 1217 Irish version, that had come to be thought of as being in force within the Lordship of Ireland. From the surviving notes of the Irish Record Commission of cases recorded on Irish plea rolls which no longer survive, we know of an assize of Darrain Presentment, I'll explain that in a moment, heard in the Dublin bench in Easter Term 1302, brought by Geoffrey Harold against Richard, Archbishop of Dublin in respect of the Church of Haraldston in County Dublin. From this we learn that the Archbishop's attorney asked the plaintiff how the assize had come to the court was told that Simon of Ludgate and William Devonish had been appointed as assize justices to take the assize and that they had then removed the assize into the Dublin bench and that the Archbishop or his agent had objected to the assize proceeding because he said, such assizes ought not to be taken or obtained before justices specially assigned nor be removed by them into the bench. But from the beginning, to be before the justices of the bench. And he vouched the King's Magna Carta for this proposition. Both parties asked for judgment, none is recorded. Chapter 18 of the 1215 Charter of Liberties, chapter 13 of the revised reissue of 1216, had required that in future assizes at the Daraim presentment And that daring resentment I now explain was a special action to determine which of two or more competing patrons was entitled to present a priest to a vacant ecclesiastical living on the basis of who had done so at the last vacancy. Those um, in 1215 and 1216 said that they were to be taken by assize justices sent to each county on a regular basis to take the more important kinds of assize, the assizes of novel disease and and mortal ancestor, and only in the county where the church concerned was located. But that requirement was dropped in 1217 for the second revised reissue of the charter, the first real Magna Carta and requirements substituted that the sizes of Darien presentment always be heard before the justices of the bench, and it was this revised requirement retained in the definitive reissue of 1225. Thus, what the Archbishop of his lawyers was invoking was either the 1217 or 1225 version of Magna Carta, not the Charter of Liberties of 1215 or 16. Just when and how this later version of Magna Carta got transmitted to Ireland remains uncertain. We do sometimes hear of the specific transmission of English legislation to Ireland. Thus we know that the provisions of Merton enacted in January 1236 were transmitted to the Justiciar of Ireland to be observed in Ireland on the 9th of May, and that this seems to have been prompted by an individual litigant wanting the new remedy of re season provided by chapter three. We also know that legislation changing the limitation date for real actions, later uh, itself to be regarded as forming part of the provisions of Merton, but not originally being part of them at all, was enacted in February 1237, but transmitted to Ireland with orders for its proclamation in late March of the same year. And later in the century, we also learn that in September 1285, a clerk of the Irish Justiciar, Stephen of Fulborne, Bishop of Waterford, was entrusted with copies of the Statutes of Westminster I of 1275, Gloucester of 1278, Merchants in Westminster II, both enacted at the Eastern Parliament earlier that year, to take to Ireland for proclamation and observance there. There is also some evidence to suggest that the English Statute of Mortmain of 1279 was formally proclaimed in Ireland, but not in 1279 or even 1280, but sometime between 1296 and 1302. But no orders are known for the extension of the Statute of Marlborough of 1267. Yet there's good evidence from 1278 onwards of the application of the Statute in Ireland and in the form of making available by the Irish Chancery of types of writ which relied on the statute for their authorisation or specifically cited the statute. It's difficult to believe that such writs would have been issued if the statute had not somehow been extended to Ireland, either by an unrecorded order from England or just possibly by the Irish Parliament authorising its application within the Lordship. And if, as seems likely, the Statute of Marlborough did come to be applicable in Ireland in one of these ways, this may also provide an explanation for the extension to Ireland of a later version of Magna Carta. Chapter 5 of the Statute of Marlborough had provided that Magna Carta was to be observed in every article, both in those relating to the king and those relating to others. This is to be required of both the justices on their heirs, sheriffs in their counters whenever needed, and writs against those who reach its provisions are to be granted freely for hearing before the king or the bench or before the justices' itinerant when they come to those parts. The English legislation was plainly referring to the latest version of Magna Carta, 1225. By implication, any version of the statute sent to Ireland was doing the same and thereby implicitly extending that version to Ireland as well. But the explanation may be a simpler one. It seems possible that the now lost authorisation of the extension of the Statute of Marlborough, whether by the English administration or by the Irish Parliament, also covered the extension of the 1225 version of Magna Carta. The 1225 version of Magna Carta was the last revised version of the document to be produced but not the last to be issued. Later issues took the form of reissues of the 1225 charter in the form of letters of inspeximus, reciting the charter in full, confirming its contents and their continuing validity, even if individual chapters had not hitherto been observed. The first such reissue took place in mid-March 1265. It dates from the period after the Battle of Lewes, when King Henry III, in whose name the reissue was issued, was a virtual prisoner of Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, who was in effective control of the English government machinery. And the reissue was part of the peace settlement made by, between the king and his perennial opponents. But the recovery of royal power after the Battle of Evesham in August 1265 invalidated almost everything done during the period of 114 rule, including this reissue. The next Inspeximus and Confirmation was issued over 30 years later, on the 9th of October 1297, but under the attestation not of the king, who was then in Flanders on campaign, but of the regent, his 13-year-old son Edward, the future King Edward II. It was again an inspeximus of the 1225 version of Magna Carta and of the Forest Charter. And that also was, like the 1225 Charter itself, quite explicitly something granted by the king or by the king's son in return for a one-off grant of taxation. In this case, a ninth, as the mandate for publication attached to the London copy makes plain. An inspeximus and confirmation issued in the name of the king attested only by his son as regent cannot have looked as good or perhaps as binding as one attested and confirmed by Edward I in person. The issuing and publication of a third such in and Confirmation of Magna Carta were probably among the demands made of the King at the Parliament which met in London and Westminster in March 1300. It was certainly something that happened towards the end of March. This final In and Confirmation was accompanied by the issuing of a separate but related statute on the same day, convention, conventionally referred to as the Articuli Super Articles on the Charters. That commenced with the first chapter, creating new special commissioners in each county for enforcing Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest. Some of the remaining chapters seem also to have been inspired by Magna Carta provisions, but to have developed them further. Chapter 18, apparently for the first time, gave a remedy by the normal writ of waste for any waste or destruction in the lands of children who had fallen into the king's warship against the king's local officials, his sub-ischitas, who administered such warships unless the king had granted them away. Chapter 4 of the 1215 Charter punished such waste in the case of a grantee of the warship only by loss of wardship. In the case of the sheriff or other custodian answerable to the king for the profits only by a payment to the king. Within both cases, the wardship passing to two men of the fee who were to be answerable to the king for the income from the land. In neither case was there any suggestion of entitlement to damages on the part of the ward. Now the heir was to receive them. And another quite interesting clause of this kind was chapter 19. That can be seen as a follow-up to part of chapter 39 of the 1215 Magna Carta in its promise that no one would be deceased without the judgment of peers or by the law of the land. It provided where a sheriff or a steater seized land belonging to others into the king's hands, and a subsequent inquiry found there to be no good cause for doing so, The profits of the land were to be returned with the land, so that the person from whom the land had been seized would suffer no loss from the unjustified seizure. And these clauses began the gradual process of making individual clauses of Magna Carta enforceable through the courts or through administrative processes against the king's officials, if not yet in person against the king. All these reissues and confirmations were specifically reissues for England. There was no thought apparently given to extending them to the king's subjects in the lordship of Ireland. But the subject was soon to be raised. In a petition of the people of Ireland to the king and his council, edited by George Sales in his documents on the affairs of Ireland before the king's council, we read a complaint that although they had hitherto since time out of mind be governed by English laws and by local custom, the justiciar of Ireland was troubling them by holding pleas by means of bills and petitions, that is, written claims and complaints submitted by plaintiffs or their legal agents, relating to trespasses, debts, covenants and other contracts without royal writs to the great damage of the king because the king lost his payments for grace and their great loss and contrary to their custom, and that the Treasurer of Ireland was also in pleading them by writs of the Exchequer, contrary to common law. The remedy they asked for was that the King would grant them the Great Charter of England, Magna Carta, and the Articles under his seal, and a writ to prohibit the Justiciar and Treasurer from persisting with hearing such pleas. The King's endorsed response was not very positive, the Justician of Ireland was to be told that pleas relating to debts over 40 shillings were to be pleaded by the King's writs and not by bills. But no other restrictions were imposed on his bill jurisdiction. No restrictions were placed on the Treasurer's jurisdiction by Exchequer writs. And to obtain Magna Carta, they were to contribute like the men of England. Sales dated this petition to 1297, because he connected it and its response with a mandate of March 1297 to John Wogan, prohibiting him from hearing common pleas initiated by bills and petitions, rather than by writs issued by Chancery to the loss of fees of the seal and the damage of the people. But that cannot be right. The prohibition is much closer to what was requested in the petition than to the endorsed response which, which suggests it should have been. Moreover, the reference to the contribution of the men of England for having Magna Carta reads like a reference to the bargain of consent to taxation in return for the confirmation of the Charter, which had yet to take place in March and was only completed in October 1297. And the reference not just to Magna Carta, but also to the Articles sounds like a reference to the articulis of Baccatas associated with the 1300 reissue and confirmation of Magna Carta, one of whose clauses, Chapter 4, prohibited common pleas from being heard in the Exchequer, which was what was also being sought. I think it's much more likely, therefore, that this petition belongs to 1300 than to 1297. More puzzling is evidence from an enrolment on a plea roll of cases heard in the Court of the Justiciary of Ireland in November 1305, now known only, sadly, from the English calendar of that roll, published in 1914, eight years before the, the original was destroyed. The executors of the will of Richard Marshall had brought a plaint against Adam de Paris, seeking an account from Adam as Richard's servant of goods of Richard handed over to him in Ireland in 1292, then subsequently sold at Bayonne in Gascony. Adam denied being Richard's servant-pervent, but said they had been merchants in a trading partnership. A jury taken before auditors, jointly chosen by the executors and by Adam, found that they had indeed been partners, and the auditors then found Adam owed the executors £14. Pounds. In Trinity term 1306, before the balance was paid, Adam produced a writ directed to the Justiciar of Ireland reciting that chapter of the Great Charter of the Liberties of England, which had required that common pleas should not follow the king's court, but be held in some certain place, and that the Justiciar should therefore not hold this plea by bill. But the court rejected this mandate on the grounds that it had been issued only through the deception of the king's chancery because the king had not yet granted to the men of this land the liberties contained in the said great charter. And judgment was given that the executors should pay, that should recover their money. The reference is to chapter 17 of the 1215 charter. That became chapter 12 of the 1216, 1217 reissues but nothing was changed in the wording of this clause for any of the reissues. Evidently, there had been no movement since 1300 towards obtaining an Irish version of the Magna Carta reissues and confirmations of 1297 or 1300. But this should not have meant that this particular chapter of Magna Carta, which had been included in the 1216 reissue and therefore presumably in the 1217 version sent to Ireland, was not still applicable, or indeed the version, probably that of 1225, invoked in the 1302 case. The place of Magna Carta in the Irish legislative canon was eventually to be secured through an Act of the Irish Parliament, meeting at Dublin in late April and May 1320, as part of the ordinances made there by the common assent of the Chief Justiciar, Roger Mortimer, Archbishops, Bishops, Earls, Barons, and the entire community of our land of Ireland. The first chapter of these ordinances established that Holy Church was to be free, to have all its liberties and free customs without any kind of infringement, and that the Great Charter of the King, granted to the clergy and people of Ireland, be published and be observed in all points, but also that the Articles under the Great Seal of England, declaring in which situation the King's prohibition was to be observed, in which not, be also published and observed. This last part seems to refer to the statute Articuli clary of November 1316 and was probably the first time this statute was extended to Ireland. The promise that Holy Church would be free was the first promise included in all versions and reissues of the Charter of Liberties and Magna Carta from 1215 through to 1300 but it was presumably mentioned as a separate item and as first in the list in order to highlight it. The Great Charter of the King granted to the clergy and people of Ireland must surely be Magna Carta in some shape or form. It might just be the 1217 Irish version of the Charter of Liberties, which had indeed been a grant to the clergy and laity of Ireland. But it seems more likely that it was some version of the 1225 Magna Carta, perhaps as reissued and confirmed in 1297 or 1300. But if so, the wording suggests that there may have been in the meanwhile, and sometime after 1305, some specific version of it granted to the king's subjects in the lordship of Ireland. Yet, this too seems improbable, for such a specifically Irish reissue of Magna Carta in the early 14th century should have left some trace in the records. It is probably safest to regard this as simply a reaffirmation of Magna Carta in its best-known and most widely circulated form, that of the 1225 Charter. As for publication, the normal meaning in such mandates is public proclamation of the full text, as the ordinances themselves were ordered to be published in every good town. But that can scarcely be the meaning here, since no text of Magna Carta is said to have been annexed to these ordinances. Perhaps it meant no more than that local authorities should publicise the validity of Magna Carta. But this chapter also needs to be read in the context of the chapter which immediately follows it. This confirms that most of the other major English statutes of the 13th century, Westminster I and II, Merton, Marlborough and Gloucester, were to be observed in Ireland. And other statutes made in England by the king and his council were to be read out and examined before the king's council, before the next meeting of parliament. Those points applicable to the people and peace of Ireland were to be confirmed there, but without prejudice to the good customs and usages of the land. So the status of Magna Carta in Ireland was confirmed in 1320 as part of a more general stock taking of the place of English legislation in the Lordship. Magna Carta was a legislative text, indeed the first English legislative text chronologically that was known to English common lawyers and justices from the 13th century onwards. Its status as such was marked by its place as the first statute in English private books of statutes compiled in some numbers from the 1280s onwards, at the very beginning of those books of statutes. From the mid 14th century onwards by its taking its place in the ranks of English statutes on which lectures were given at the inns of the court. But Magna Carta was also more than that. It was a grant made and confirmed to their subjects by successive monarchs, John, Henry III, and Edward I, which explicitly acknowledged the limits and restraints on royal power over not just their barons, but also over the humble freeman and even some purposes over the unfree. The story of Magna Carta in Ireland between 1215 and 1320 is more difficult to trace clearly because much of the evidence which might shed light on it is now lost. The 1320 ordinances of the Dublin Parliament suggest that it had gained a special place in the legislative canon, was not seen simply as another piece of English legislation that had been extended to Ireland. It's the only piece of originally English legislation that was seen as having been granted. To the clergy and people of Ireland. What had started life as the Charter of Liberties of England, and was still so being described in 1306, had indeed, by 1320, become the Great Charter of Ireland.